Well, good morning, everyone. Man, isn't it good to be back? Like Jesse was saying, it's been since uh, Christmas, the New Year, the snowstorm, since we've all been together. So I haven't seen most of you all since last year. Pretty crazy, but good to be back. And if you are new here, we are so glad that you are joining us. This is week two in a series that we're doing on the end of the world. Dun, dun, dun. And <laughs> this whole idea of there being an end to the world isn't just a religious idea or a Christian idea. Uh, even if somebody doesn't believe in spiritual things, they'd have to admit that the end of the world is inevitable, even just based on the second law of thermodynamics. The second law of thermodynamics basically says that any natural process left to itself moves to a state of disorder. And that's the state of our world as it's kind of losing energy. And uh, our world is kind of like a flashlight that's running on batteries. Those batteries have a limited amount of energy. And over time, it starts to run out of energy. The flashlight grows dimmer. And then it goes out. So there is going to be an end to this world. And so the question is, are you ready? And if you're not ready, don't worry. I got you covered. I put together packets of survival gear and dehydrated food and ammunition. I'll be selling them at the end of the service for $99.99. And all of the proceeds will go towards putting my son through college. Uh, all right. If you know me, I'm just kidding. Uh, this isn't what it looks like to be prepared for the end of the world. And I do believe that there is going to be an end to this world as we know it. But before this world just kind of runs out of energy, I believe there's going to be an intervention by Jesus. Jesus is going to come back someday. And so when we talk about being ready for the end of the world, what we're really talking about is being ready for Jesus to come back. And being ready for Jesus to come back isn't about having bunkers and ammunition and dehydrated food. And so this morning, we're going to talk about what it really looks like to be ready for Jesus to come again someday. And so if you have a copy of God's Word, we're going to be in Mark chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible with you, we'll have it up here on the screen for you to follow along. And this week, somebody was kind enough to put together a little note sheet for us. So if you're somebody who likes to take notes, we'll have it organized for you on this note sheet, and we'll have some of those fill-in-the-blanks up here on the screen as we work our way through what God's Word says. So Mark chapter 13, and we're going to look briefly at what's called the Olivet Discourse, a conversation that Jesus has with his disciples on Mount Olives. And he has this conversation with this, his disciples because they were passing by the temple. And as they were passing by the temple, the disciples of Jesus were pointing out the stones in the temple. And they're like, Jesus, take a look at this architecture. Like back in that day, the stones that made up the foundation for this temple are bigger than anything we could trace back to in history and bigger than anything since that time in history, even up until today. So the temple was an incredible feat of architecture, and the disciples are pointing this out to Jesus, and then Jesus says something that would have really caught their attention. 
Jesus told them that there would be a time when not one stone of that temple would sit on top of another stone. He's saying this temple is going to be completely destroyed. And the disciples of Jesus probably would have heard this and thought about the destruction of their first temple. The Jewish people, they're kind of used to having their temples destroyed. I mean, all the way back in 587 B.C., the Babylonians came in and destroyed Jerusalem, completely ransacked the temple and carried people away into captivity. And so the disciples of Jesus are familiar with this in their history, and now they hear Jesus saying that this temple is going to be destroyed. And so they're asking Jesus, all right, what's going on for this temple to be destroyed? Like what's going to lead up to this? How's it going to go down? And Jesus tells them about some signs that are going to happen. And, to, and he told them that when they see these signs take place, that they should run for the hills. And that would have seemed like kind of backwards advice back in this day. Because if you saw impending doom, if you saw like an army coming towards you, normally what you would do is you would run to a fortress. You would run to a city, a place where you can defend yourself. But Jesus is saying, run to the hills. And history shows us that Jesus was absolutely right in what he told his disciples about the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. And anyone who was listening to Jesus' instructions and paying attention to his warning signs would have had the opportunity to escape this destruction. In 70 AD, the Jewish people revolted against the Romans who were ruling over them. And in response to that, the Romans laid siege on Jerusalem. So if people had taken Jesus' warning seriously and they saw this impending doom, they would have run away from Jerusalem. But the people who were stuck in the city were under siege for four months. The Roman army was encamped around the city. It cut off their supply chains. They had nowhere to go. And then at the end of those four months, the Romans finally broke in and they slaughtered more than a million Jewish people and they set the temple on fire. And as this temple was on fire, it melted the store supplies of gold and silver. And so this melted gold and silver kind of fell between the cracks in the temple. And so after the fire had died out, the Romans literally removed every single stone from this temple to get to the gold and silver that had fallen between the cracks. And so as Jesus, um, as it goes to show, Jesus was absolutely right in his predictions about the destruction of the temple. And he calls this the coming of the Lord. And I think he's making a connection to the end times of Jesus coming back someday. And so we're going to read about that in verse 28 of Mark chapter 13. So Jesus says, Now learn a lesson from the fig tree. When its branches bud and its leaves begin to sprout, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things take place, you can know that his return is very near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass away from the scene before all these things take place. Heaven and earth will disappear, 
but my words will never disappear. However, no one knows the day or the hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows. And since you don't know when that time will come, be on guard, stay alert. Now, I got to be honest with you, this passage is a little bit confusing and being able to know, like, what is things of the past that Jesus was talking about, like the destruction of the temple and the signs leading to the destruction of the temple, and what's future. Maybe it's about the coming of Jesus at the end of the age. But either way you land on figuring out what's future, what's in the past, we know that Jesus is coming back someday, and the application is true for all of us here in this room. And that is we need to be ready for the return of Jesus. Just like the disciples and the people in that day needed to look for the signs of the Romans coming to attack Jerusalem and destroy that temple, we need to be looking for the signs of Jesus coming back someday and being ready for his return. And Jesus was so focused on teaching his disciples about this idea of being ready and staying alert that he gives them a parable which is a fictional story that teaches a spiritual lesson. And so that's what we'll read next. He says in verse 34, The coming of the Son of Man can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. Then he left home. He gave each of his slaves instructions about the work they were to do. He told the gatekeeper to watch for his return. You too must keep watch, for you don't know when the master of the household will return. In the evening, at midnight, before dawn, or at daybreak, don't let him find you sleeping when he arrives without warning. I say to you what I say to everyone, watch for him. And so we have this instruction to watch for the coming of Jesus, and being prepared for his return is not about having stocked up uh, ammunition or dehydrated food or anything like that. And I believe that if we are going to be ready for Jesus to come back, what we need to do is know who Jesus is. And I think this is true whether you've been a Christian for most of your life or maybe you wouldn't claim to be a Christian. We all need to know who Jesus is. And so what we're going to do is we're actually going to jump ahead to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And we're going to start out in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. And we're going to get an idea of who Jesus is. So if you want to turn with me to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1, it starts out saying, This is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, the events that must soon take place. He sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant, John. And so it's commonly believed, I think it's true, that it is John, the disciple of Jesus, who wrote the book of Revelation towards the end of his life. This is the last book in the Bible. This is the last book to be written. And I believe that the book of Revelation is really kind of unique compared to all of the other books in the New Testament. So the New Testament is the last part of our Bibles that talk about uh, the life and the ministry of Jesus. And so in the New Testament, we have 
the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that's about Jesus' ministry on earth and his life and all of that. And then in the New Testament, we have books of the Bible that are called epistles, which is a fancy word for letters. And these letters were from the apostles or disciples, people like Peter and John and Paul, who are writing to churches or individuals to give them instructions for how to do ministry or um, just doctrine about God. And so if you're flipping through the New Testament and you find books of the Bible with kind of a funny name, that's probably the location of the church that one of these letters was written to. Now, the book of Revelation is a little bit unique in the sense that uh, it's like a letter written to a church. It's actually a letter written to seven churches, but John isn't writing to these churches because he has a close relationship with these churches and he knows what's going on and it's just been on his heart to write to them. Instead, he has this revelation from Jesus. Jesus tells John what to write to these seven churches and giving them instructions. And so if you have a Bible that has the words of Jesus in red, what you'll see is that the first three chapters of Revelation have all this writing in red because these are really instructions from Jesus to the seven churches. And then after chapter three in Revelation, you get into more apocalyptic literature. Things get a little crazy with like symbols and numbers and signs and all of that. And if you want to go ahead and read it this week, uh, I think that'd be awesome to keep you connected with what we're talking about in this series. But I'll just tell you, man, it is hard to figure out what is going on in the book of Revelation. It's kind of like interpreting a dream, and all these things have symbolism, and even the best Bible scholars don't have everything totally figured out. So that's just a heads up if you end up reading Revelation later this week, if you've never read it before. Uh, but we're just going to focus on the beginning part of this book in Revelation. And if we skip down to verse 4, this is where John gives an introduction to these seven churches. He says, This letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come from the sevenfold spirit before his throne and from Jesus Christ. He is the faithful witness to these things, the first to rise from the dead and the ruler of all the kings of the world. All glory to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. He made us a kingdom of priests for God his Father. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. Look, he comes on the clouds of heaven and everyone will see him even those who pierced him. And all the nations of the world will mourn for him. Yes, amen. We'll stop right there. But as we read this description of Jesus, or even if we were to look back at other descriptions of Jesus throughout the Bible, you don't really get a picture of a pale white guy with soft velvety hair and looking like he could be an advertisement for facial lotion. What we get here is a description of a victorious king. And all throughout the Bible, there's these descriptions of Jesus, even in the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible. 
And a lot of these descriptions talk about Jesus coming as a victorious king, somebody who will bring peace to the earth, someone who will have this eternal reign. But when Jesus came to this world, and the way that he lived his life, the way that he did his ministry, it would have seemed like a surprise to all these people who read these descriptions of Jesus and had certain expectations. Like it would have surprised people that Jesus would be living in a town called Nazareth. Like back in Jesus' day, there was this saying to the effect of, is there anything good that can come from Nazareth? Because apparently people didn't think anything good could come from Nazareth. And it seems kind of weird that Jesus would just be a low-profile kind of nobody guy for most of his life, at least in the eyes of other people. And it would have surprised people to see that Jesus did not try to leverage his popularity and his influence and his ability to do miracles to become king over the Jews, to set up his throne and to defeat the Romans and to set those people free. It would have surprised people that Jesus, when he was up there on the cross, didn't call for angels to come down from heaven and to rescue him and to really display his power and his glory. When Jesus came to this world the first time, he came with an agenda. And his agenda was to live the perfect life that we could never live and to die the death on the cross that we all deserve to die. He paid the price for our sin up there on that cross. And when Jesus came to this world the first time, he came as a suffering servant. But that isn't the full picture of who Jesus is. And if you think of Jesus, almost think of like two sides to a coin. Yes, Jesus came the first time as a suffering servant, someone who didn't really show the extent of his glory, his power, and his majesty. But someday Jesus is going to come back again as a victorious king and to fulfill all of these descriptions in the Bible about Jesus. And so talking about Jesus as a victorious king, let's go back and look at some of the ways that Jesus is described in this passage that we just read. I condensed some of this into bullet points on the screen behind me. But it said here that Jesus is the first to rise from the dead. And that same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that will raise to life believers at the end of the age. And this is such an incredible hope to those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus that when we die, we're not just going to stay in the grave, but we are going to rise again to new life through the power of God. And Jesus sets the example for that. The other thing that we read here is that he is the ruler of all the kings of the world. Jesus is the king. He's not just one king among many kings, but he is the king of kings. And he has freed us from our sins. When Jesus was up there on the cross, he took the price for our sins so that we can be forgiven. And when he rose from the dead, he proved that he is victorious over sin and death. And Jesus has made us a kingdom of priests, which means we don't need some kind of temple structure in order to connect with God. We don't need some kind of earthly priest in order to be the go-between between us and God. But we can have a direct relationship with God the Father because of what Jesus has done for us. And 
when Jesus left his earthly ministry and went back into heaven, he went up on the clouds, and there were some angels that told the people who watched Jesus ascend into heaven that he would return in the same way. Jesus is going to come back on the clouds, and he's going to come back as that victorious king and to judge this world for sin. And so when we talk about knowing Jesus, it's not just about knowing about a good teacher who lived 2,000 years ago, but it's about knowing this Jesus who was and is and is yet to come and to have this full picture of Jesus as not just a suffering servant, but as a victorious king. And so if we truly know who Jesus is, then it's not enough to just have this information about Jesus and to not have it change our hearts and not have it change the way that we live. And so being prepared for Jesus to come back is not just about information, but it's also about obedience and letting what we know about Jesus transform our hearts and come out of our lives in an outward display. And so we're going to take a look with our remainder of time uh, at a church that John wrote to in the book of Revelation, the church of Laodicea. And so if you have your Bibles and you're following along there, you just have to flip a couple of pages to chapter 3, and we're going to be in verse 14 here. Revelation chapter 3 in verse 14. And this is, this is John writing to this church on behalf of Jesus. This is re- really instructions for this church from Jesus. And this is what it says. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Laodicea. This is the message from the one who is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. That's a long title for Jesus. And it says in verse 15, I know all the things you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other. But since you are luke, like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You, all right, we'll stop right there. So this place, Laodicea, uh, has a lot going for it. And one of the nice things about Laodicea is that it's on a major trade route. And so there's all kinds of uh, trading and business going on in Laodicea. But one of the downsides to living in Laodicea is their water situation. And I think the mark of a good communicator is using illustrations and analogies that connect with the audience. Now, Jesus is like the best teacher of all time. And so in this whole passage, Jesus is going to use all of these illustrations from Laodicea's geography and their history in order to communicate a spiritual lesson to them. And so here, Jesus is referencing their geography and this water problem that they have. Because based on where Laodicea is located, they didn't really have a good water supply to draw from. And so they had to bring in water from six miles away through this aqueduct system. And this water that they're drawing from, to begin with, isn't that great of water. It has a very high mineral content. And so if, if you were to take a sip of water that had been 
uh, brought into Laodicea from six miles away, you would have tasted this lukewarm, like room temperature, disgusting mineral water. You'd be like, you want to just spit it out. It's nasty. And by contrast, there's these two other places, Heropolis and Colossae, and they had a pretty good water system. In Heropolis, they had these natural uh, water, hot water springs, and so they could draw hot water from these springs. In Colossae, they were near the mountains, and so they would have this cool, refreshing water from the mountains. And there's value to hot water, and there's value to cold water. It's not as much value to room temperature water. Like if you go to a coffee shop, you're probably going to get hot coffee or iced coffee. Hot tea or iced tea. Not room temperature coffee or room temperature tea. And so Jesus is comparing the people in Laodicea and these Christians to their water and basically saying they're like lukewarm, disgusting water. They're repulsive. Why are... Why would Jesus make this comparison? Why would he be so disgusted with these people? So let's keep on reading and we'll find out for ourselves. In uh, verse 17, it says, You say, I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So I advise you to buy gold from me that has been purified by fire. Then you will be rich. Also buy white garments from me so you will not be shamed by your nakedness and ointment for your eyes so that you will be able to see. So here, I think Jesus is referring back to some of their history. Back around 60 AD, there was this devastating earthquake that totally wrecked Laodicea. And so Rome offered to send a bunch of money to Laodicea to help them rebuild after this earthquake. But the people in Laodicea were so wealthy and so well off, they actually refused this aid from Rome, and they just rebuilt Laodicea all on their own. And so they kind of had this mindset of like, we don't need any outside help. We can do this ourselves. And that mindset had translated to the Christians here where they're so well-to-do. They have money and resources to meet their needs. They feel like they don't need Jesus. Like why pray for daily bread when you have a booming career and you know you can put bread on the table? Why pray to God for healing when you have advanced medicine at your fingertips? Why do you really have to look to God for anything if you know that you can just provide that for yourselves? And that's the mindset that these people had. And so they, they had all of these material things, but spiritually they were lacking because they weren't looking to Jesus for fulfillment. You ever clean out your house and you find something that you're not really using but you don't want to throw it away because it's like maybe down the road, then I'll really want it. And so where does it go? It goes in the garage or the basement. You just kind of tuck it away out of sight, out of mind, but it's there for you if you want it later. 
That's how I think these people were treating their relationship with Jesus. Is they have this faith in Jesus, they're Christians, they just, they don't really need Jesus. Let's just put them away in the basement and they'll come looking for Jesus when something falls apart in their life and they can't fix it on their own. And the, the sad thing is I read this description of Laodicea is what I, I see in our American culture. In America, we have so much abundance. All, these, all this cushion, and sometimes this cushion keeps us from really running to God and seeking our fulfillment in him. And I'm not just finger pointing here because as I read this, I see this as describing my life too. And so often I don't live for God 100% because I try to just do things in my own strength. And it it sounds kind of brutal that Jesus would say that these people are so repulsive that he just wants to like spit them out of his mouth. But I don't think that Jesus is just heaping guilt on these people because he wants to beat them down and just make them feel sorry. But Jesus, I think what he wants to do here is to restore this relationship. He wants these people to realize that what they really truly need is found in Jesus. And Jesus can give them everything that their heart longs for. And so Jesus is calling them to restore this relationship, to come back running to him, and he has his arms wide open. In verse 19, he says, I correct and discipline everyone I love. The fact that Jesus is correcting this church is because he loves them. And so he says, so be diligent and turn from your indifference. Look, I stand at the door and knock, and if you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in And we will share a meal together as friends. Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. So Jesus wants to restore this relationship. He wants these people to come running back to him. And I think what we can take away from this is that when we constantly neglect the spirit of God, the message of God, then our passion for the things of God will decrease. Like if we're not reading God's word and leaning into a relationship with him, if our heartbeat isn't to live for God and we're just kind of put Jesus in the basement or the attic, then our hearts just get more and more disconnected from that relationship with God and our passion for him can decrease in our lives. And so as we talk about application for this morning, I think there's two things, and there's probably so much more than this, but two things that I think would be so helpful for all of us. And one is to be in God's word on a regular basis, getting to know God better. And I would encourage you, if you have some kind of way to do that, maybe you already do devotions in the morning, maybe you have a Bible plan, um, or something like that. And if that's what you're already doing, awesome. Just continue on with that. If you are looking for some kind of Bible plan, you don't know where to start. Or if you want to do something that kind of tracks with what we're talking about on Sunday mornings. We, one of the pastors at Bridgewater put together this little booklet. And it's just a little deeper study into the seven churches that John writes to in the book of Revelation. 
And so these are available at the welcome desk if you want to pick one of these up. It's got lines for you to write in there and some questions to get you thinking. And the other thing that I think would be so helpful for all of us is to not just be hearers of the word, but to be doers as well. And so often we can just read the Bible and be like, yep, did my devotions for today, check that box. But I want to encourage all of us to ask the next question, and that is, how can that impact today? What is the next step in my relationship with God? So I just want to encourage all of us to be doing that this week. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that Jesus is coming back someday, that we have this hope in you, that we don't have to worry about this world running out of energy or uh, all kinds of weird apocalyptic stuff because we know that in the end, you are victorious. You defeat Satan. You have already defeated death and you are going to restore this world to how it was before sin and corruption just kind of ruined everything. And so I ask that as we think about end times kind of things, that we wouldn't be scared, we wouldn't be afraid of what is to come, but that we would just have that foundation of our hope in you. But I also ask that we would live ready, that we would be people who make every moment that you have given us in this life count. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.